The Guardian. You're listening to the Futurescape Short Stories podcast, in which writers imagine what life will be like in the year 2025. The project is an exciting collaboration between Sony and Forum for the Future. It encourages people to think more deeply about the possibilities for our future. In this edition, we feature Marcus Sedgwick reading his story, Life in 2025. The shuttle train is quiet, full of people, but quiet. They sit, heads bowed, unaware of each other, unaware of the view sliding by, the view of the green spreading fields that become the dense suburbs that become the dazzling skyscrapers of the city itself. Suzuki Susumu rides the train back from the airport into the centre. He's heading home. Between his feet he has placed his one small bag protectively because in his bag is something he believes will change the world. He's the only one who doesn't bow his head. He looks at the changing view, he observes the colours of the leaves, the texture of the concrete, the light of reflections on rain-dampened streets. He looks at the other passengers. He knows what they're doing, their heads bowed as if in contemplation, and maybe they are. Each contemplates their life, wondering how to make it better, how to get more fulfilment, more joy, more of everything. Only the lives they are contemplating are not their real ones, but the lives of dream space. Susumu knows what they are doing, gazing at their phone, toying with the dream space app, preparing the world they will re-enter upon sleep. He knows exactly what they're doing, because he designed the app. Of course, he didn't design the original technology. That began in 2012, when researchers managed to record still images direct from the optic nerve. It wasn't long before they found they could record something merely being visualised by the subject. Next, they found they could record moving images of whatever a subject chose to imagine. These early recordings were strange affairs, as the researchers experimented with different techniques and as the subject learned how to control the visualisations. The film, taken from sensors located on the skull, was peculiar stuff, twisted and floating, shifting and merging images, surreal as a dream. And it might have been that which made someone wonder, as the technology improved, whether it would be possible to capture dreams themselves. In the fall of 2017, the first recording of a dream was made, and with the subject's consent posted on the internet for the whole world to view. The dream itself was nothing special, a sequence of images from the subject, a woman named Yukiko, who had dreamed of her childhood home and her mother long since dead. Once it was posted, the reaction was enormous and further development swiftly followed when another research group got in touch with the optical team. This group had been working on oral recording techniques, and a mere six months later, a new dream was posted on the net, this one with a full, though bizarre, soundtrack to the dream of a man called Tadashi, who flew from a rooftop, laughing. Within another 12 months, the first commercially available dream recorder was on the market. Soon the clumsy sensors taped to the skull disappeared, to be replaced by a tiny and harmless sensor implanted just under the skin at the base of the skull. A five-minute operation was all it took to enable anyone to have a potentially permanent access to the whole electrical and emotional life of their brain. These devices were expensive to begin with, 
but the price tumbled as, in truth, there was nothing very extraordinary about the technology. The following winter saw a tipping point as demand for the dream recorders rocketed. In the way that often happens, sudden leaps in technology piled in upon themselves and the turning point was when the pioneering research team revealed that far from being a one-way process in which the dream recorder taped the thoughts of the brain, they could equally use the recordings to stimulate the brain, thus enabling a dreamer to continue a dream they'd had the night before, or the week before, or, theoretically, to stimulate a dream about anything at all. Some doubted the accuracy of these early experiments, but the key insight hinged on the fact that the memory of a dream is identical to the memory of a real event. There is no biochemical or physiological difference between them. They are the same. It began as a gimmick, a trick, a small piece of entertainment and escapism, and yet within 18 months everyone in the Western world was controlling their dream world, and the vast majority of them used the same app to do it, an app called DreamSpace, written by Suzuki Susumu of the hurriedly founded Dream Corps. It seemed there was a fortune to be made, one that would make those of the social networking sites look like coins in a jar on the kitchen shelf. By the time the thing that had begun as a gimmick started to worry governments, it was too late to legislate. A few commentators took notice when more people were using the DreamSpace app than the largest social network, but despite all the dreaming going on, no one dreamed what was going to happen. Besides, those politicians like to control their dreams as much as anyone else. In the dream space, you could be anyone. You could do anything, be with anyone, and you could make believe a completely happy life far from reality with all its woes and worries. The real world brought daily news of climactic disaster, of religious war, of petrol shortage, of water shortage, of land shortage. Of all the global disasters that had been spoken about all those years ago at Kyoto and Durban and Reykjavik, the greatest problem was the one no one had dared to mention, population explosion. The demands of nine billion people had simply become too great for one planet, and the result was famine, disease and war. But that was a world that only applied to seven billion people. For the two billion in the developed world, there was dream space. Get through your day at work, eat some food, get to bed early. With additional apps to encourage longer sleep patterns, and in particular REM sleep, it became more and more attractive to live in dream space, where life was, for want of a better word, perfect. It wasn't long before many people started to spend more than 12 hours in dream space, and at that point, as night became another day, who could say which was the more important of their two lives? Which was the more real? Whole families opted to link into a dream network to live a new life together. Others stayed solo, guarding their fantasy life jealously. Don't like your job? Get a new one. As an immortal fighter pilot, or a supermodel, or a football player. Unhappy with your wife? Dream of a new, younger one with longer legs and smoother skin. Don't like yourself? Reimagine you just as you would like to be taller, fitter, better looking, a more skillful lover, successful, liked by everyone, sought out, admired, desired, quite simply, better. For years, people had made themselves think they felt happier by worshipping celebrities, all those magazines, TV programmes, talent shows, all selling the promise of happiness. And now, wasn't it better not to idolise those few individuals, but to become them? Susamu thinks of the old couple who live in the apartment across the hall from him. He knows, because Takeo has confided in him, that he now has a different spouse, younger, sexier, fitter, with fewer grey hairs and more love for him.
Kazuko has confided no such thing, but Susumu has seen how her eyes twinkle when she thinks she's not being watched. By day they rub along, at night they each dream a thousand new fantasies, spending their waking hours in a kind of daze, wondering what new joys to give themselves. And so, in effect, they spend their whole lives, not just their sleeping hours, dreaming. Susumu reaches his stop and nurses his bag through the doors and into a taxi as if it's a newborn child. Maybe it is. Around him, crowds of people silently walking, their minds somewhere else, their fingertips programming their phones even as they go. The taxi drifts through the city to the district where he lives. He doesn't blame people for retreating to dream space. If anything, he blames himself for writing the app. But he knows that someone else would have done it if he hadn't and he'd been as big a user as anyone. For three years, he'd lived in an entirely different world. He'd become an astronaut, strangely, and had travelled faster than light to distant galaxies, where he had communed with bodiless creatures who spoke to him in a silent language of poetic beauty. He drifted with them in their mind world across eons of black space, learning the dark secrets of the universe, marvelling at how little he understood. For Susumu's great mind, that felt like a pleasure, a secret and guilty joy to know nothing. He dreamed of the stars, and yet, in the end, something had pulled him back to Earth with a bang. He doesn't know why. His working life had changed, his real working life. He'd been promoted several times, and his reputation had grown on the back of the Dream Space app. One day, his boss had called him in. We have great reach, said Yoshio. We speak to only a fraction of the world, the developed world. I want to reach the other seven billion, Susumu-san. I want you to travel and see how we can spread dream space to the rest of the world. It is a world of poverty, but some will emerge with a little money. If we can take even a fraction of that market, we will achieve wealth and control. I will give you a year to travel everywhere and then use that excellent brain of yours to report to me how we will proceed. And so he travelled throughout the developing world. He'd been to South America, to Africa, to Asia, and somewhere along the way his mind had been opened. He'd seen what the rest of the world was struggling with, and he knew that he'd got it wrong. He had been using technology in the wrong way. Here, in the Sudan, he'd seen water recycling technologies, powered by photovoltaics, controlled by cheap yet effective processes. There, in India, he'd seen stronger strains of crops producing previously unthought-of yields and everywhere were nanotechnologies, so that processing was happening at a microscopic level, doing a hundred different jobs to make the lives of the poorest better. Purifying dirty water, engineering drought-resistant crops, making smart materials for buildings that could withstand an earthquake, and even rebuild themselves at molecular level if damaged. He saw simple field medical stations that could diagnose and treat disease, saving the eyesight or the limbs, or the lives of millions. He'd seen nanomedicines that could enhance drug delivery systems, even prevent the transmission of HIV. He'd seen lives saved, health rebuilt, food brought to the starving, even sight brought to the blind with virtual eye technologies. He remembers watching a young blind man take his first steps with an audio describer, relaying minutely detailed information about the world around him, transforming the quality of his life. He remembers hearing the man laughing. That, he thought, is what we should be doing. What I should be doing. Using technology to make people's lives better, but their real lives, not their dream ones. 
With the population of the world exploding across its face, it had become vital, he knew, that every resource was precious, that things should be done most efficiently, that unusable land should be saved, that water should be efficiently desalinated. And nanotechnologies were the way to do it. So, somewhere along the journey that year, he'd taken out his phone and deleted the app, his app, the DreamSpace app, so that his dreams would no longer be under his control. That first night, somewhere in Africa, he recalled, he'd had a dream of such startling strangeness. There had been a certain pain and some wonder, and he'd woken, sweating and panting, in the middle of the night. It had been years since he'd woken in the night, thanks to the control that DreamSpace offered. It was unfamiliar, and for a while he sat awake, staring into the blackness, listening to the sounds of the dark. When he finally slept again, he slept long and woke late. When he did, he saw what DreamSpace had done to everyone, and how it had turned lively and engaging people into little more than fleshy robots, doing all the mundane things that they had to do before they could scurry off into the virtual lives of DreamSpace once more. The following day, Susumu walked holding his phone out in front of him and began to film. He saw the colours of the landscape, the colour of the sky. He saw wrinkles on faces and ants in the dust. He smelt fruit in the markets and dung near the cattle. He heard laughter and chatter and shouts of anger. He filmed and he filmed and he filmed, recording everyday life in the poor countries through which he travelled. And finally, one day, he recorded something that he thought would make a difference. He booked a flight home, though he wasn't due back for another three months. He'd left all his clothes and belongings, bar the small bag with enough for the journey, and his phone. He caught a bus to the town, a train to the city, then to his plane, to another plane, to the shuttle train, to this taxi, and now he steps out at the foot of his block, still cradling his bag. He gazes up at his apartment on the 20th floor. It feels like a lifetime since he's been there. He steps into the lift and thumbs the button. As he steps out into his corridor, old Takeo and Kazuko are there. He hasn't seen them for nine months, but they neither smile nor acknowledge him. They do not look at each other either, just stare blankly. He reaches his door, apartment 25, floor 20. The print reader lets him in, it at least has not forgotten him, and slipping off his shoes, he places the bag on the low table in the living room. There is no time to waste. Night is coming on. People are returning from work. He slips his phone from the bag and wanders through to the home station where he sinks it. Once it's done, he transfers and copies the film files to his server, copying it twice, saving it in different places. Of course, he knows what he is about to do is risky, but he has no choice. He designed the DreamSpace app, and he co-designed the entire system upon which it runs. Not everyone in the world uses their system, but around 90% do, and some time ago, it was decided to write in a facility whereby users could, optionally of course, receive selected content from DreamSpace rather than dreams of their own creation. A revenue stream was devised whereby, in return for a small remuneration, users would watch a small amount of advertising in their dream, along with their own creations. And though the system was entirely opt-in, Susumu himself wrote the code that allowed any user's privacy and other settings to be overwritten from DreamCore's control, or indeed, from Susumu's workstation in apartment 2025. He knows they will find out what he has done, and very quickly. He will lose his job, at best. At worst, he might be imprisoned for tampering with company technology. He takes one last look out of the window, sighs. 
He helped cause this waking sleep, and now, using the same technology, he's going to do something to fix it. He turns from the window and gets to work. It doesn't take that long to prepare, and that is just as well. It's getting late. Within a few minutes, he has everything ready. All he has to do is press a single key. He closes his eyes and presses it. And that night, every single DreamSpace user has the same dream. Rather than the dream they have programmed, their dream is stimulated by a piece of film that Susumu took in Ethiopia that he has now disseminated to nearly two billion people. It's a short and simple dream. In it, a small girl in a poor African village is playing with a deflated football. It's way too big for her and she has trouble kicking it, but nevertheless she keeps at it, thumping it as best as she can against a nearby wall. Her clothes are dirty and torn. She's clearly at the very limit of human existence. She runs at the ball once more and trips, falls, landing on her face. She looks surprised for a moment, then tears come to her eyes and she begins to cry. A boy comes out from a low mud house. He's a little bigger than she is and is probably her brother. He walks over to her and picks her up, setting her on her feet. He tickles her and her tears are replaced by laughter. The girl says something, and the boy laughs too. He nods and runs over to the football, rolls it gently to her so she can try again and again to kick it further and a little more strongly. They play together for hours. That's it. That's all it is. But Susumu's excellent brain saw what the dream meant, what it would mean to people, what it represented. That they are not alive in dream space. That, in a perfect world, one that is utterly perfect, people cease to own themselves. They cease to be what it is to be human, to have to have at least some effort to exert, some struggle to face, and that only in this way can they be happy. When the night is over, Susumu, who has not slept a wink from fear at what he has done, goes out into the small grass square in front of his block. He's there for a while, alone, and then he sees people drifting into the morning sunlight. There's a quiet cough at his shoulder. He turns to see old Takeo and Kazuko from apartment 2024. Susumu-san, when did you get back? He smiles. Takeo goes on. We had a strange dream last night. We both did. Susumu sees that the old man is holding his wife's hand. They are smiling. A beautiful morning, Susumu-san. Susumu agrees. Yes, he will lose his job. And he may go to prison, but after that, well, there are all those nanoprocessors in the developing world. They will need good programmers to write code for them. Yes, Takeo-san, he says. A beautiful morning. He smiles. The Guardian's Sarah Crown spoke to Marcus about his story. Okay, Marcus, so your story, rather than looking outwards as we're kind of used to science fiction, to the stars, to space opera, that kind of thing, your vision of the future involves looking inwards into an aspect of ourselves that's actually immeasurably ancient. Why did you decide to come to it this way around? Yeah, science fiction is a big and broad topic, isn't it? And I've written quite a lot of science fiction, but actually none of it looks like science fiction. It's more what they prefer to call speculative fiction, I think to broaden it out into a wider kind of thought about any way the future might be different. Uh, and this particular story, as you say, is, 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 yeah, you're right, it does come back to something deep and human within us. 
partially just because I had had an idea knocking around for years about a society in which dreams are kind of controlling people or, or that, the, you know, a society is trying to control people with their dreams. And it's one of those ideas that I'd never developed. I mean, most writers have this kind of bottom drawer of things where there's the odd thing floating around. And then often it takes something else to kind of spark a connection. So when this commission came along uh, for Futurescapes, this came back to me and thought, well, actually, what was missing from this idea was this application of technology. It's a sort of 21st century Orwellian tale, isn't it, with with dreams as the soma, I suppose, the equivalent of soma, stupefying the population. Yeah. Drawing yeah, their attention yeah. away from all the problems, which you yeah. do mention, the, the ongoing problems of climate change and religious conflict and the fallout from population explosion. But you've decided not to foreground those issues. Yeah, I mean, I think this is just a kind of stylistic point in that, well, A, writing something to commission is quite an interesting proposition in the first place because immediately you're sort of trying to do a particular job and the danger is therefore you become tremendously didactic about what you're doing and you end up writing something that what you might be getting a point across is not great writing. So I was being very careful to not sort of get weighed down, you know, bogged down in some of those big issues, but nonetheless I did want to put them in the background, if not in the foreground. And the story turns on the idea of the opportunities and also the dangers that technology affords us. What do you think of technology? Is it value neutral or does it have a, a capacity for... Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think that's my, my main point, really, is that, um, you know, technology is neither good nor bad. It's just what people make of it and how it turns out that's important and how we relate to it as people. So that's why even within the story, I'm not, you know, I'm making a broad point that technology is neither good nor bad, but also this specific app that my character Suzuki invents, you know, that's what he actually uses in the end to get start getting out of this fix too. But what it does throw up is the frightening influence in a society that sort of lives its life through technology that individuals can have on us. And obviously, in the end, Suzuki decides that he's going to use technology for good ends. But it really could go the other way. Absolutely. And there's the implication there that he's playing God uh, again at the end of the story. You know, And as you say, hopefully for good in this case, but could equally be for bad. This story is my personal little rant about the way I feel about some of the technological things that are going on at the moment. And I'm not a technophobe at all. You know, I embrace technology, but also I think I'm slightly wary about some of the aspects of social networking sites. And that links into my other personal rant about celebrity worshipping, <laughs> because it's something I feel very strongly about in that I think what we're feeding, particularly young people, but all of us to an extent, through TV at the moment in this kind of, you know, celebrity culture and the get famous quick culture of, you know, all these talent shows and reality TV is selling our young people short. And, you know, that's why you can see in the, in my story, the idea is that people then just, you know, they just want to live these fancy lives and not actually get to grips what, with what their own life has to offer. great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.